It's my mic, or it's now or never. <laughs> I don't know why I'm going on. So hey you and welcome, my name is Mike, and in this whole episode of the That Chapter Podcast, we are coming back for more witches, but replace W with a B. Whoop whoop. So yeah, I'm once again joined by Keith, of course. Keith, what's new with you? Welcome back again for another, I mean, I don't know if I'm saying welcome back because you're like the co-host pretty much at this point, so freaking guest and collaborator. Thanks, man. Good to be back. Happy to be here. Also, like again, another strange episode. I don't know how different it's going to sound for the listener, but for us, it's it's a little strange because we're not in the same room. Yeah. We're still over in America. I'm in I'm in my house. Yeah. Um. So yeah, bit. It's a different vibe doing over Zoom. I guess we're used to kind of sitting down, shooting this shit, having a couple of beers after, watching a movie. That's it. I don't know. I'm going to do after this. Yeah, exactly. I don't even, I'm going to go to bed because there's a, well, I, I'm still sick. And there's a five-hour time difference, actually, between when we're recording right now. What time is it there now? Uh, it is 5.06 5. p.m. Oh, okay. Cool, what, cool. It's like, what, 10.06 for you? Oh, yeah, my God. 10, it's so late. It's past your bedtime. What are you still doing up? Yeah, I'll probably go to bed, like, usually around 11, and then uh, my daughter wakes up at 6, and then uh, the day begins. Well, a man needs his seven hours. And by the way, speaking of this, while I'm, you're there, and I'm here, y'all are there, and I'm here. Um, you are there in your haunted house, of all places. Keith, what new stories have you got for us? So I have one. Me and my wife have kind of been debating about it. Uh, I'll tell you the story and you can decide yourself. We'll, we'll let the listeners decide. Let the listeners decide. Okay. So we were going to bed uh, as we do every night. And we went in to check on our daughter um, who was fast asleep. So we both walked into the room to check on her because she's been feeling a little underweather herself lately. Just, you know, to change the season. So we went in. The two was just checking her, feel the temperature, make sure she's okay. When we were leaving... I hear it like it sounded like a child saying mama and it definitely wasn't our daughter because I could hear her snoring her head off so she was still snoring and over the snoring I heard they're like mama I definitely heard it it's clear as day my wife heard it but she's like she's like ah I don't think it was my it's, it's like I heard something but I don't know what it was it's like it's like you were right there how'd you not hear it yeah and she was like I definitely heard a noise but I don't think it was that so she just thinks it's a noise but I clearly uh, hear This is the mama. creepiest one yet. Keith, this, the baseball. The baseball, yeah, the, the baseball's weird. The mama was, that, that, that really caught me off. That caught my breath when I was walking out. And the worst thing is, I, we didn't have her, we didn't have her bleeding camera on. So I didn't, uh, <laughs> I didn't know what that was behind you there. <laughs> it, was, yeah. it, it was your wife walking yeah. into the room. This Zoom thing has thrown me through a loop. But um, yeah, I, I didn't have her, her baby monitor on because we were just going to bed. We were setting it up and... Uh, yeah, so I was like, rage that we didn't get on camera because then we could have put it to rest of like who was right, which is, you know, the most important thing in all marriages. Who is right? Who yeah. is correct? It doesn't really matter what the truth is. It's that you're right. Honestly, of course, it doesn't absolutely. even matter what's the truth. It's just that you won. <laughs> you're the winner. You beat her. That's it. That's the, that's the secret to all happy marriages. <laughs> Beating your wife, but not physically. <laughs> yes yes <laughs> just in, in mental mind games <laughs> exactly the battle of the wills and the worst thing is they're so much better at it than we are as well oh like yeah i games. lose i lose every time i swear to god they've been trained their whole lives for it like mm-hmm. they're like i know chess players are about like seven moves ahead i'm still like in the dirt being like what happened i was like oh man i just i just got punked i know i feel like i'm getting gas that i time. <laughs> <laughs> but uh keith that's honestly just that's honestly the most terrifying thing i feel like your wife is in denial she heard it too, but she doesn't want to admit she heard it because then it would admit that your house is actually haunted. That's it. And she, and she was like, maybe it was our daughter. And I was like, 
it definitely wasn't because I can hear her snoring. She's like, yeah, I guess I can hear her snoring as well. It's like, it might have been just a noise from outside. And I was like, no, because I heard it so clear within the room. That's why I turned back. I yeah. thought she was calling us. And then I was like, oh, no, no, it's not. It's not her. Does your daughter even say mama or does she say mom or like, is that something she would say? Would she say mama? Like, is that something she would say? Yeah, yeah, she would. Yeah, she'd say mama. And okay, for, for me, it depends. Sometimes if she's trying to be cute, she'll say dada to me. But then mm-hmm. she's really funny. She'll, for most of the time, she calls me Keith. Um, <laughs> especially when, like, she wants attention. It'd be like, dada, da Keith! It's like, what, what? <laughs> <laughs> it's so funny when babies call their parents by their real name i know yeah yeah and i was kind of i i think it's because like me and my wife we call each other like it'd be weird for me to be like oh mama will you pass me that yeah yeah, yeah. she's not my mom you know yeah yeah so i think it's because we call each other by our our names that she's obviously picking up on that but uh, mm-hmm. yeah whatever so that is really, really weird. Uh, so the house is genuinely very, very creepy. Ghosts and the two dead people in your attic. Speaking of uh, old dead people, uh, which I guess your house is haunted by, now we are talking about more witches. But specifically, we're talking about a king. King James of England, Scotland, uh, Britain, I guess. Scotland, and then then it went to England. Like, all, all the United Kingdom. Yeah, yeah. So, so this story... We're fast forwarding in this episode from about a century from our last episode. This is about a hundred years from when books like the Malleus Maleficarum or the Phallus Nocum. Phallus Maleficarum. There we go, that book. Spread demonological ideas that ignited a surge in witch trials. These books were available from bookstalls in university and cathedral towns, making their way to an extensive readership that extended beyond clergymen to include nobles, queens, and kings. By 1600, demonology had become essential knowledge, even for national leaders like King James VI of Scotland. King James was born in Edinburgh in 1566. He was king of Scotland as King James VI from the 24th of July, 1567, and king of England and Ireland as James I from the union of the Scottish and English crowns on the 24th of March, 1603, until his death in 1625. Whoa, spoiler alert, he's dead? (laughs) Yeah. King James was known as the Cradle King because he'd become ruler of Scotland at the tender age of 13 months. This happened because his mother, Mary, Queen of Scots, had fled Scotland due to months of conflict and turmoil on her own home, Toif. She sought shelter in England, believing that Queen Elizabeth I would support her cause, but she was kept in captivity in England for 19 years. Just uh, one of those classic stories, huh? Yeah, man, the old keeping you in chains for almost 20 years guy. Love it. (laughs) What a prank. So James, he had a very lonely and volatile childhood. At only a few months old, he survived the murder of his father. As a youth, he narrowly escaped a number of kidnapping and assassination attempts, so it's easy to kind of see how and why he would grow into a fearful and suspicious man. In his formative years, James was instructed to disdain his absent mother's vulnerability and immoral behavior, which seemed to create a general distaste for all women in his view. Well, hey, that's like a psychological thing, right? If you probably, if you hate your mother or had a shitty mother, you kind of hate all women because you learn about women from your mother or something like that. I don't know. I'm not a psychologist. They talked about it in a movie one time I seen. You should be. You were locked in? I was, I was like, I was so, I was locked in there. I was focused. I was like, okay, go on, go on. I'll start channeling my freaking, I'll become like the, 
Jordan Peterson asshole of, uh, of this podcast then as well. That's what I can do now next. He's, he started off doing a podcast about witches, actually. <laughs> God damn it. That was going to be my thing. He was also a very fragile and sickly child. And for the first six or seven years of his life, he was unable to stand or walk without assistance. Because of this, he obviously wasn't a very active child, so he preferred studying instead of physical pursuits. However, he really did enjoy horse riding, but the only way he could do this was getting tied to a horse. Which is not a joke. They tied a fragile and sick crippled child to a horse and thought it was okay. Which in fairness now, it's pretty funny. James was trained by scholars in the Protestant faith, and he grew up with a strong aversion to Catholicism. Because the latter was closely entwined with sorcery, it's no wonder he developed a deep-seated suspicion of witchcraft. In 1598, with all the political turmoil at home and abroad, James looked to strengthen his position by making an alliance with a foreign bride, and his choice fell on Anne, daughter of the Danish-Norwegian king. The marriage was celebrated by proxy on the 20th of August, and Anne was then to set sail for Scotland. However, after three weeks, there was still no sign of her. Eventually, one of James's advisors arrived with terrible news. Queen Anne's fleet had been battered back to Denmark by violent storms, and with the onset of winter, these sailors decided to abandon the voyage until there were calmer seas. Now James wasn't having any of that, and in a romantic gesture, he declared he would sail across the North Sea and collect his bride himself. He successfully made it over, and four days after arriving, the couple were married. Now, in the middle of the Scandinavian winter, James was not going to brave the seas again until spring, so he decided to stay a couple of months in Denmark, where he ate and drank and met a number of interesting people. Notably, a renowned astronomer who was a firm believer in witchcraft. Witches were actively hunted in Denmark, and the Scottish king was greatly inspired by this, and thus the seeds of his own witch hunting were sown. When spring rolled around, James and his bride set off back to Scotland. The weather was much milder, but in the middle of the journey, the royal fleet was hit with a massive storm again and one of the ships was lost. This time, however, James knew what was up. Witches. Yeah. <laughs> he knew there was a goddamn witches behind this again. See, the seas were calm when he sailed out and they're not so calm, which is trying to get him. It's the only explanation. Of course, absolutely the only explanation. What else would it be? Actual weather? <laughs> he believed that witches had cast an evil spell upon the fleet to try and kill them. Now, witchcraft had been on the Scottish law books since 1563, but not much was really being done about it and it was all going unprosecuted. So James thought that, well, being king of Scotland, that when he got home, he would see about that. James wasn't long off the boat when a hundred suspected witches were arrested and examined for their devilish plot to drown the Scottish king and his new wife. James believed there was an international conspiracy of hundreds of witches that wanted to go toe for toe, bat for bat with the king. And so began the North Berwick Trials. And one of the first to confess was a young woman named Gaelis, or Gilly Duncan, a servant in the house of David Seaton. As well as being a servant, Gilly had a reputation as a healer, and David Seaton thought Gilly was using ungodly magic in her healing. As a woman, she was not medically qualified, but some of her supposed cures were described as most miraculous. That's what happens when you're just too goddamn good at your job. You're clearly a witch, because <laughs> nobody's going to be that good. 
this is really remnant of like Salem, uh, where the witches here, it's a lot about like evil and suspected witches and there's a lot of to do with um, when someone gets sick or there's famine the crops failing where like it's so funny when it's reading about Salem it's like oh how was your corn higher than my corn witchcraft it's just it's mm. real petty shit yeah, uh, yeah. I am here for it but uh, yeah no sorry we'll get to that when we actually get to Salem and talk about it Gilly was subjected to severe torture which included the use of pillywinks which is a delightful sounding thing but you know what don't ask for the pillywinks even as fun as that is to say because it is a horrific device similar to thumb screws and gilly would provide a complete confession stating she was involved with a large network of witches who were determined to kill the king she disclosed the identities of 70 70 other co-conspirators who had conspired to assassinate king james and one of these named conspirators included Agnes Sampson, who was another healer from the area. These stories or confessions, quotes there, were given about the last witch's Sabbath, which was attended by, what she said, hundreds of witches, each one flying there on a sieve, which basically looked like a, a wicker mm, basket that yeah. they would sit in. Yeah, yeah. But it was believed that they made flying ointments out of rendered fat and herbs, which they would then rub all over their bodies. The fat was believed to come from unbaptized babies, and the oils within the mixture would seep into their skin, giving them the ability to fly to the Sabbath. If you've seen the film The Witch, this is what happened to baby Samuel mm-hmm. um, when the witch took him. Do you know that? I think it's one of the first scenes. It is. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the baby gets taken and she has like nearly like a pestle. Yeah. And she rubs it. She lies there. Very down creepy. Very creepy uh, scene in the movie. But yeah, that's what they believe that the witches would steal uh, unbaptized babies, kill them and grind them up into a paste and then cover themselves with that. And that would get ready for the Sabbath. And that's it. So yeah, it would give them the ability to fly. And then the, the story of the Sabbath, which Gilly talked about, she said that they went on to dance and sing before using magic to break into a local church. When they entered, they encountered the main man himself, the devil. Do, 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 do. The devil, he then uh, went and took attendance of everyone. He said he went around and said everyone's name and they said, here. And then he demanded a report of evil harm being done since their last meeting. It was all very professional. I love that. What evil things have you done in the last 12 days? Tell me. <laughs> I um, caused the guy's dick to disappear. <laughs> I mashed up a baby. I grew more corn than the other guy. I uh, was really good at healing because apparently that's very evil. So I was like the best healer in my village. And the devil's like, well, two gold star for you. <laughs> yeah, promotion. Yeah, exactly. You're now witch manager, <laughs> witch team leader. It was very, it's all very political. Oh yeah, exactly. It's all games, it's all bureaucracy, man. So this story certainly caught James's attention and he suspected witches were attacking him. And guess what? He just happened to get proof of that exact thing. And by proof, I mean torturing somebody until they tell you what you want to hear. Agnes Sampson was brought in and James himself oversaw the interrogation. Agnes denied the charges, so she had all her hair shaved off so they could look for the mark of the devil. Now, the mark of the devil could be anything from a mole to a wart to just a blemish, which every single human on earth is covered with somewhere with shit like that, okay? It's crazy that they, like, you're, most people's faces have, like, a mole or something on the, or blemish on your face. I mean, it's crazy that this was, like, proof. Witch hunters believed the marks were made by Satan to show which belonged to him. Kind of like, kind of like a pimp, you know? <laughs> nice. 
So after Agnes was shaved, each part of her body, including her head, was constricted with a rope. It was wrapped around her temples and twisted to agonizing tightness. This went on for about an hour to the absolute delight of King James. His face in the corners, ooh, jerking off. <laughs> Agnes was strong, however, and did not confess during this punishment. But when her genitals were searched and a mark was found, she gave in. The torture and sexual assault, coupled with the belief they had found evidence on her body indicating her involvement in witchcraft, was just too much for her, and she gave James exactly what he wanted. Agnes confessed that she had magical powers, and by working with the devil, she was actually present on James's wedding night in Norway by magical means. To prove it, she whispered into James's ear the very words that the king had said to his new wife on their wedding night. Now, whether she made an extremely lucky guess, she got it spot on, although then again, James would know what he had said, so she could have made up anything. It was like, I did say that. Wow, you are a witch, person who I am determined to find as a witch. It's like, this whole thing is just, it's amazingly, it's amazing how stupid this shit is. It would be very funny if it wasn't just so horrible. James had become completely convinced, and his suspicions were validated. He promptly ordered the torture to stop, as she appeared to be telling the quote-unquote truth. Clearly, this played into Agnes's strategy, where, regrettably, the idea of death to her was far more preferable than enduring prolonged agony, humiliation, and torture. Agnes was spared the horror of burning at the stake, like many of her other co-conspirators during the North Berwick witch trials. Instead, she was taken to the Castle Hill in Edinburgh, bound to a stake, and then strangled until she was dead. Her remains were then burned to ash. These trials and false confessions led James to believe that the devil hated him, and he now saw himself as an avenging knight of the Christian faith, which he happily accepted. He believed that the more vigorously he pursued those accused of conspiring with the devil, the less influence the devil would have over him and his kingdom. After the North Berwick witch trials, James continued his sadistic witch hunts and promoted the use of extreme, brutal torture to extract confessions. He believed that only through the most severe suffering and cruel torment would the essential information be revealed. This type of torture that he subjected these women to included pulling off prisoners' fingernails with a pair of pinchers and then sticking needles up to the heads into basically uh, what was left of their fingertips. Oh uh, my god. Uh, the most horrifying method that he used, it was called the torment of boots. Whereby prisoners, they were put into iron boots and then wedges would be driven in using hammers to shatter their shins and their ankles. Ah, uh, yes. Yes, grim man. One account describes how one prisoner had their legs crushed and beaten so badly that blood and bone marrow spurted out of the boots in great abundance. <sighs> Man, Grim. that is that is gruesome as all hell. And yet he was sadistic. He like he loved all this. He he watched the whole thing and he really enjoyed it. Yeah, he was yeah he was a sick he was a sick puppy. Similar to Heinrich Kramer, James authored a manual on witch hunting. He remains the only monarch in history to have published a book on witchcraft. The book, named Demonology, which literally translates to the science of demons, consists of 80 pages that were translated into Latin, French, and Dutch. Despite its lack of original or groundbreaking ideas, 
The fact that it was written by a king of all people rendered it immensely influential. Within the book, one of the most dangerous lines of reasoning revolved around the condemnation of those suspected of witchcraft. James contended that God will not permit that any innocent person shall be slandered with that vile defection, essentially implying that an accusation alone was enough to establish guilt. No innocent person can even be accused of being a witch, is what he's saying, so therefore accusation is a death sentence, and unfortunately it pretty much was for a lot of these people. And it was this kind of thinking and behavior that paved the way for the notorious Witchfinder General Matthew Hopkins, whose witch hunts proved not only highly effective, but also highly profitable. Ladies and gentlemen, it's the big guy! <laughs> it's time. Honestly, the whole point of doing this witchcraft stuff was really an excuse for me to get back to talking about Matthew. Yeah, this guy is crazy. He is like, he is a wild card. I think we talked about this before, but like, how has there not been a movie made about him? I think there has been, I can't remember the name of it. I watched, just like for research, I briefly stumbled across a movie done on YouTube. Like it's an official, it's old though. But mm. I think, yeah, like a, like a new movie with explosions and yeah, that'd be cool. I'd be into that. Mm -hmm. Don't know where the explosions would come from. Maybe for the bone marrow spurting out of these boots, but uh, yeah, that'd be kind of cool. Speaking of witch witches and like we, we spoke about the Black Death and stuff like that, did you ever see that movie, what's it called? It has Sean Bean in it and it's like they, they go to hunt a witch. It's set in England. Um, Sean Bean plays a knight. Eddie Redmayne is like a monk who goes with them to this village in a swamp in England. It's set during medieval times. That sounds so familiar. It's a good-ass movie. Like, he becomes, a, essentially, Eddie Redmayne's character becomes, like, the witch hunter at the end of the movie. Um, I can't remember what it was called, but it was good. Black Death. That's what the movie's called. Oh, Black Death. I have seen that. I was getting confused. There's, there's another one as well called The Last Witch Hunter, and that has Vin Diesel in it. Okay, no, it wasn't the not, Vin not Diesel. That, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think there's one with, um, I feel there has to be one with Nicolas Cage as well. There was a movie with Nicolas Cage in it where he hunts witches too. We should do a ranking of best witch movies. Okay, go. Number one, uh, Hocus Pocus, obviously. Yeah. No. Number, number, number one is The Witch. The Witch. I, think the yeah. witch I love The Witch. It's Hands probably my down. favorite horror movie ever. Also, that movie is called The Season of the Witch with Nicolas Cage. That's obviously number two. Yeah. <laughs> love a good Nicolas Cage movie. <laughs> the Witch is here. That's good, dude. That's really good. Is it actually? Yeah, I like that. Actually? That was very good. Oh, I, yeah. think it, I thought that was bad. You're but okay, really, thank you. You're really good at impressions. <laughs> no, I'm not. I'm fucking terrible. That, so that's that, I think The Witch is such a good horror movie. I love it. Yeah, like you're right. It's so it's so accurate as well. Like just from the dialogue and stuff like that, it really gets into um, you know just like the superstitions and it doesn't uh, like even the the baby pasting stuff. I mean, I think the first time I watched it, I didn't know what a lot of shit was happening because I didn't know the actual superstitions because it doesn't really tell you. Yes, yeah. which is a good thing. It doesn't you know explain this stuff to you. I watched a it was an interview done with the director Robert. Eggers after and he was talking about the witch he was describing all this I said like I didn't really realise a lot of at, at the time the familiars uh, and the ointments for the skin he kind of described all this I was like oh and that's when I kind of started looking into it more and got like super interested in it but yeah very knowledgeable guy brilliant director I think it was a yeah, great movie okay so now it's time for Matthew Hopkins and the trial of Bess Clark now there is limited information regarding Matthew Hopkins early life prior to 1644 Nearly all that is known about his early life is that he was born in Great Wenham, Suffolk, as the fourth child among six siblings. 
His father, James Hopkins, held the position of Puritan clergyman and was the vicar of St. John's in Great Wenham, Suffolk. What we do know, however, is that between the years 1644 and 1646, Hopkins and his associates are believed to have been responsible for the debts of 300 women, and many of the methods that Hopkins adopted to investigate these cases of witchcraft were taken directly from King James's bestseller number one New York Times, Demonology. Hopkins actually began his career as a witch hunter during the English Civil War, which was between August 1642 and September 1651. Interestingly, lawful witch hunting during this era was actually diminishing as the English church and state had essentially collapsed during a civil war, as you can imagine. However, this didn't mean that witch hunting had stopped altogether. England was now made up of these like semi-autonomous regions that where there was they essentially had this like degree of self-governance. For the process of witch trials, they relied on amateur witch hunters like Matthew Hopkins, who had read demonologies and had an interest in killing people uh, to cut to the chase, but had no official state role. Trials were no longer overseen by legal experts, so essentially. The witch trials were just a hell of a lot more dated. Essentially, like in this period of time during this English Civil War and all this, it was like the Wild West. There was war everywhere, there was famine everywhere, and then of course beliefs go crazy during this time. And so you have a guy like Matthew Hopkins who can come in and say, oh, it's this woman over here, she's causing all your problems, pay me and we'll kill her. So these witch hunters were also largely in sync with the religious grouping that we now know as Puritan, essentially. So the Puritans were strict Protestants, who believed that the Reformation had not sufficiently eradicated Catholic customs, many of which were considered magical, and therefore regarded as sinister rituals. In the hands of a Puritan, the witch trials had become an act of revolution and a means to eradicate all forms of sin. This environment served as the ideal setting for a vulnerable and easily influenced young man. Matthew Hopkins was greatly exposed to these beliefs, being the son of a Puritan clergyman, well, there was only one way he was going to go. Even when Matthew Hopkins' father died in 1634, when Matthew was in his teens, his mother, Marie, remarried, and Matthew found himself the stepson of another churchman, Thomas Withan, a rector from Manningtree, Essex. Despite his excellent education and privileged status, Matthew was a deeply anxious young man. This was partly a result of the national tensions of the Civil War and the increasing prevalence of witch trials conducted by ordinary citizens in the 1640s. Shortly after Matthew relocated to Manningtree with his mother, he became convinced that the community... There's a shit ton of witches in here, lads! In the 1640s, Manningtree was a riverside village of traders, sailors, and hauliers. Despite the disruption of the war, though, it was still a prosperous village. However, there was still a pre-existing tension that lay the groundwork for a witch hunt. Now, the first formal accusations for witchcraft were made on the 21st of March 1643, when John Rivett's wife started experiencing fits that had such intensity, John himself deemed them to be beyond natural explanation. Their knowledge of natural stuff back in 1643 it went very, very far, so if he couldn't explain it, it was clearly witchcraft. John sought the help of a magical advisor that told him that his wife was, had indeed been cursed by a witch. The witch lived on a hill above John's house. With this information, John knew exactly who was to blame. A poor, disabled woman named Bess 
Clark, who had only one leg. She was also unmarried with an illegitimate child, so was extremely vulnerable and the perfect target for a witch accusation. Matthew Hopkins, he was in town at this point and he was a bit of an agitator, a bit of a shitster. And just four days after John gave his accusation, Matthew approached the magistrates about Bess. Matthew claimed to have recognized her as a member of a coven that had been convening near his residence every six weeks for several months, disturbing his peace. This best guy, she's been hanging out my, her and her witch gang, hanging outside my house every six weeks for the last few months. I'm only mentioning this now, because um, I only just remembered it suddenly, all of a sudden. But you know what, That's she's been there the whole time. He said he had heard strange conversations about animals, familiar spirits, and a witch's Sabbath. These were all insights he had acquired through his study of King James's demonology and various other textbooks which Matthew had been fascinated with. Excited to uncover a witch and their familiars, Matthew was keen, peachy keen, on pursuing a more in-depth investigation and showcasing his witch-finding abilities. And this was apparently no problem at all, possibly due to his status as the rector's stepson. After Bess was arrested on the 21st of March, Matthew spent three days and nights with the help of some neighbors, keeping her under observation, which was called watching. This this type of torture, it was like, it was favored. It was the favorite method of extracting confessions in England because authorities believed no physical pain was involved. So it did not constitute as real torture. Watching, however, involved keeping the suspected witch awake for 40 plus hours until they were basically like de delirious with fatigue and had no idea what they were admitting to. One judge claimed it was so effective that fewer than 2% of all victims failed to submit. I mean, like, with, that, with those kind of numbers. Exactly. Yeah, you're, 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 you get some pretty good batting. Probably more people would admit to this than they would under actual physical torture. But it's like kind of like waterboarding, you know, they did. It's like, it's not real torture, though. We're not actually hurting them. We're just psychologically torturing yeah, yeah. them till they go insane. And then admit to what we want. Exactly, yeah. So watching was used by Matthew Hopkins during his reign of terror in Essex to devastating effect. The suspected witch would be, she'd be positioned in the center of a room, typically on a stool or a table in an uncomfortable stance and then restrained with cords. At times they would have them walk or run the room back and forth until they were out of breath and which like just encouraged on more mm -hmm. and more fatigue, which when we look at the case with Bess Clark, she had one leg and they <laughs> still had her going back and forth. Right, like she was wrecked. Yeah. Following this, she would then be closely monitored without being allowed to eat or sleep for over 40 plus hours, during which time they expected to witness her familiar. So for those who don't know, the familiar was basically a demon that helped the witch in her evil doings, often disguised as a domestic pet, such as a cat or a dog, but there were also rabbits, hedgehogs, frogs, birds, spiders, flies, etc. Basically, any animal. Yeah, any animal around here, that's your familiar. You fucking witch. Exactly, yeah. So, like, they were in, like, a dingy cottage, keeping a woman awake for 40 plus hours, and if a spider happened to drop by, like, oh, there it is. Gotcha, gotcha. There's your buddy, there's your pal. A huge issue with this technique of watching apart from the obvious, was that those who were tasked with watching were also quite susceptible to be in a delirious fatigue fugue state. 
So it wasn't uncommon for these watchers to hallucinate and say that they had witnessed familiars, imps and goblins within the room because they were so tired from staying up at like the 40 hours as well, watching this woman trying to get her tired. In turn, they were getting tired and everyone was hallucinating and it was just, it was madness. You know, we focused a lot on the people being tortured, but hey, the people doing the torturing were exhausted also. We should really think about them too. It, it sounded it, it sounded exhausting torturing people. Like, we should really throw them a bone too. Well, there you go. So essentially, you could just invent anything you ever wanted. Now, Matthew Hopkins wasn't stupid and knew well that it was very possible the witch's familiar may not appear. But this wasn't because they were innocent. Oh no, it was because the familiar was simply invisible. Because of course it was. So Matthew liked to cover his bases, so he had four women also examine her body for demonic marks. As mentioned with King James, these marks would have been left by the witch's familiar, who were thought to suck blood from the witches as a type of reward for doing harm on behalf of the witch. Again, in the, the film, the witch, this imagery can be seen uh, with the when the raven is biting or suckling on the mother, Catherine. Do you know that scene where she's just like cackling to herself? Yeah. And the just like pecking at her. Biting her, her boob. I me- yeah, I remember I seen that. I think the first time I seen that, I was like, what the fuck? I just thought it was like a really weird and disturbing scene. But yeah, I didn't get that. Like now I yeah, know that's supposed to be familiar because they're like turning to witches or whatever. And these these demonic marks they were that they were looking for, um, they as you, you mentioned before, they could really just be about anything. They could be from like flea bites and warts and moles, birthmarks, aid spots, or virtually any other type of skin imperfection that you can imagine. So it's not shocking that they're trying to find a witch in this way had like a 100%. It was 100% effective. Mm-hmm. I know it always worked. Yeah. It was a great way of finding witches because it always worked. You always found your woman. It's amazing. Like Matthew Hopkins, complete asshole, but like numbers don't lie, man. He had a 100% success rate. I know, he was really good at his job. This sleep deprivation torture and intrusive surveillance on Bess Clark lasted from the 21st to the 24th of March. On the night of the 24th, when Hopkins entered Bess's cell to question her once again, she suddenly exclaimed, to everyone's surprise, I will show you my imps! By this, she meant she would summon her familiar spirits. Exhausted and terrified, Bess simply wished for this ordeal to end, whatever the consequences, so she told them what they wanted to hear. In Matthew's words, given later to the magistrates, he said the devil had been her lover for six or seven years. He seduced her and drew her into sin. Bess continued and started summoning her familiars into her cell by producing smacking sounds with her mouth. She proceeded to describe the appearance of her familiars that were still partially concealed in the shadows. We know the Watchers didn't actually see any of the familiars, but later they all gave varying accounts of what they looked like. Bess then proceeded to give the names of her familiars, which were... Keith, take it away. Okay, so there's a few. So the first one is Germana, which was a white dog with sandy spots and fat with short (laughs) legs. Adorable. Vinegar Tom, a greyhound with long legs who turned into a four-year-old boy with no head. Terrifying. Not, not so lovable. A black imp. That was it. There was one called News, which is a polecat with a large head. Holt, a white imp, which was smaller than a cat. Other white imps also uh, showed up that went to bed with Clark in the shape of a proper gentleman. Ooh. And laced with a band. Yeah, very fancy. There was also three brown imps from her mother, 
There was Sack and Sugar, a demonic black rabbit, and other familiars referred to by name but not description were Elmazar, Pie Wacket, Peck in the Crown, and Grizzle Greedy Gut. I like Grizzle Greedy Gut. <laughs> That's the best one. That's when you like, you know you, you eat a bit too much dinner. It's like ah you, yeah yeah Grizzle Greedy Gut. Grizzle Greedy Gut. Yeah. You took the last bit out of. So these names they were obviously made up by the mad ravings of an exhausted and delirious woman. And Bess went on to confess that these familiars harassed her until she agreed to let them kill some pigs belonging to Matthew Hopkins' stepbrother-in-law. Bess then also accused Anne West and Anne Leach, both widows, and Elizabeth Goodwin of being witches like her. So Matthew then took this list of new suspects straight to the magistrates, so they too could be arrested. During similar questioning and interrogation, Anne Leach confessed to working with Bess Clark and Elizabeth Goodwin, sending familiars to kill cows and also kill two young girls. Helen, the daughter of Anne Leach, was also implicated in accusations of witchcraft, along with Rebecca, the daughter of Anne West. Bess Clark and the other accused were driven from their cells in guarded carts to Chelmsford, the town where the trial would be held. The townspeople crammed inside the hall to get a good view of the witch trial, which was presided over by a chief judge and two juries, a grand jury and a petty jury, totaling 36 men. Like many European state courts of the time, no defense lawyers were allowed. Instead, the judicial system relied on trained judges to analyze the accusers' stories. They would then advise juries and steer the decision-making that led to a verdict. Now, most judges were not religious fundamentalists. Instead, they devoted their time to legal texts. However, in this instance, because the legal system was disrupted by the Civil War, the judge overseeing Bess Clark's case happened to be a Puritan. Matthew Hopkins stood up before the judge and jurors and made statements against the accused. He spoke about the confessions made and all the evidence he had witnessed during his interrogations. It only took the jury a few minutes to decide a verdict of guilty. The women from Manningtree were not the only women on trial. By now, witchcraft accusations had spread feverishly through other villages in Essex, and the outcome of the trial was a disaster for the accused women. In all, 36 women had been imprisoned, and 29 were sentenced to death. On the 18th of July, 1645, Bess Clark and 19 other accused women took the long walk to the gallows. The women had to queue to be killed. And during the wait, a woman named Margaret Moore died of fear, likely suffering a heart attack or a stroke. And the other women could just look on in horror, crying, unable to help, as they waited their turn with the hangman. When it came to Bess's turn, there was a slight issue because, if you remember, she only had one leg and the women were expected to climb up the rungs and stand still until they were pushed by the executioner. It's likely that the hangman, along with some other men, needed to help Bess get in place and hold her in position until she dropped. Matthew Hopkins was only warming up. Throughout this ordeal, he had discovered his true calling as a witch finder, 
and set out touring several counties, traveling from one community to another with his new witch-finding roadshow, charging about 20 shillings a town to sort out their witch problems. At the end of the day, Matthew found his true calling in life. Now he had a goal, he had, he'd found his purpose, so it kind of worked out really in the end. One month following the execution of Bess Clark, one of the largest witch trials in English history took place in Bury St. Edmunds, Suffolk. 18 individuals, 16 women and two men were hanged based on evidence presented by Hopkins. Roughly a hundred more accused individuals endured wretched conditions in prison and sadly some undoubtedly perished due to disease and exposure. Business was good, he made a lot of money and Hopkins employed the aid of women who came to be known as lady prickers. These women were responsible for examining the bodies of the accused for devil's marks which were extra nipples where a witch's familiar was thought to circle. Such marks were occasionally pierced to test if the individual displayed any signs of pain. It is suspected that Hopkins used prickers with retractable pins to pretend that his victims were unaffected, so they would touch them and they'd be painful to the women, and then, oh, what happened? It's just sore just to touch you? When they had secret pins, they were poking them with essentially right yeah i think it was like it was kind of like one of those like retractable blades mm -hmm. so when you if you stuck it in someone who was human you'd expect them to bleed but if you stuck it in a witch they wouldn't oh bleed. it's because it was retractable they'd stick it in and nothing would happen ah. and they'd be like oh how did i stick this in you and this massive pin and you were okay you didn't bleed it must be witchcraft and everyone goes oh yeah, uh, very, very good, good. <laughs> very good magic. yeah yeah well done yeah <laughs> knocked me out of the park yet again <laughs> how does he do this love it <laughs> hopkins also continued using the torture technique of watching which worked so well with best clarks but he also began a technique called ducking or swimming the witch so this is where villagers would bind a suspected witch with ropes and then just chuck him in, toss her into a river, chuck him in into a pond to observe whether she would float or sink. If she floated, she was considered a witch because a water being pure was believed to reject evil. Mm. And if she sank, she would, they would do their best to try and pull her out, but oftentimes to no avail. Yeah, I'm sure they... They probably didn't try too hard. Like, she was tied up. She sank like a rock, you know? And they're trying to drag her from the bottom of the pond. Yeah, not going to work. Yeah, a lot, of, a lot of people died. This was different from the ducking stool, which you might have seen before. Witches were actually not put on the ducking stool. So this is that, you know that seesaw mm. contraption where it has a chair at the end? And yeah. they would dunk a person. Yeah, seesaw with a chair in the end. Yeah, of course. Yeah, it's like the classic witch thing, yeah. Yeah, I, I think there was actually, there was, there was a TV show called Salem, um, which is not historically accurate, but they had the, the, this ducking stool where, yeah, they were putting women in and pulling them out and trying to get them to confess to being witches. But yeah, this wasn't used for, for, for witches. Instead, this was saved for scolds. Ooh. So a scold was a bad-tempered or quarrelsome or irritating woman. <laughs> That's just called women. Yeah. <laughs> Hey. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so this punishment was seen as a way of cooling off her temper. Basically, these towns just got some El grumpy fucker and <laughs> then put her in a pond because they were sick of her shit. Yeah, and then, I like, love pulled it. her back out. It's like, are you done? 
Are you done now? Okay, you can go. You can move on. It's great. But yeah, it wasn't for witches. It was just for women that they didn't like within within the town. And it really kind of just shows what the time was like and how women were treated of the yeah. time. It was just like if they didn't like you, it was just like oh, into the pond you go. Yeah, in in you get. You're gonna you're gonna continue being a annoying old bat. There you go, man. Wow, that's that was that's pretty rough. Kind of funny, but pretty rough. Yeah. As hysteria intensified, Hopkins devoted the year 1646 to his witch hunts seeking a substantial fee in exchange for his efforts. Reports emerged that Ipswich in Suffolk had to actually increase taxes to cover the costs of his services. So the taxpayer was paying arm and a leg for old Matty Hoppy over here. Various sources claim that between 200 and 300 people were executed as a result of Hopkins. In 1647, Hopkins died young. His death did, thankfully, help slow down the witch-hunting frenzy. However, before he died, Hopkins did publish a 10-page demonology book called The Discovery of Witches. In this book, he also gave himself the title Witchfinder General, a title which has stuck with him throughout the ages. So this book that he wrote, like 45 years after the death of Hopkins, we have the Salem Witch Trials. And I know a lot of the Puritans in Salem, like, they came from Essex. I w- they, they probably heard of Hopkins. They probably yeah. read his work. They probably knew. Salem is in Essex County. Yes. Yeah, that's very true. But, um, yeah, very interesting in, in, interesting story. These particular witch ones, they, they really marked an incredibly grim chapter in human history. Not to mention, like, what we talked about, but also the trials that occurred on mainland Europe as well. So, for instance, the Bamberg Witch Trials, which unfolded in Germany between 1626 and 1631, this resulted in the conviction of 1,000 individuals, with 900 of them being burned at the stake. Insane. It was an atrocious period where prisons just teemed with countless women. And for the first time in history, like men with ulterior motives had access to do what they wanted with these women. Mm -hmm. And the officially sanctioned torture they inflicted involved cruel experiments and un- unwarranted sexual aggression. For example, there was, I was reading, there was a, there was a French priest who he applied, he was trying to force confession and he applied boiling fat to a woman's armpits and thighs and stomach and genitals. Jesus. Trying to get a confession over. Yeah. And this unfortunate woman, she died in prison, likely from her inflicted injuries. But it just goes to show that the men involved in tracking down and prosecuting these alleged witches could indulge in this type of sexual gratification without worrying about facing any type of consequences, which... Right, yeah. I guess this kind of contributes to the... If, try, if we're trying to understand the puzzling and swift growth of witch hysteria within Europe. So, yeah, I guess on, on, on that cheerful note... Listen, uh, bad times for some, probably not all. Uh, in fairness, now I probably can't speak too harshly because if I was back then, I, I would have had pretty, had a, you know, pretty would have been right for me. But um, <laughs> I think I think it was okay for most men back then. Yeah, was, exactly. Uh, yeah, so it's definitely. like, yeah. Well, anyway, um, so yeah, there you go. That's the story of witches. It's pretty grim. Uh, it's pretty dark and not very fun, but it's really hella interesting. I give it that. Extremely interesting, yeah. yeah. And as I said, like, this is very close to the Salem Witch Trials. Fascinating, another fascinating time in history. What, what we talked about today was mostly just about, uh, mostly about England. 
we kind of touched on Henrik Kramer when he was on the mainland in Europe, but uh, like there was so many witch trials that happened in Europe as well. Huge witch trials. Oh, yeah, yeah. But um, yeah, no, uh, next, well, we will be focusing more on the American ones pretty soon, like Salem uh, with maybe some video content. I, I know a lot of people have been asking, when are they going to see Keith? Well, maybe, you know, I'm not sure what the order of these being posted is. You'll probably, maybe, he, maybe you'll have seen him. By the time you are listening to this, I don't think so, actually. No, you won't have seen him by the time this goes live. I don't think so. Um, okay, so I'm still a mystery currently at the moment. You're okay. still a mystery currently by the time people are listening to this episode <laughs> of the podcast. But Keith uh, will appear in a video uh, at some point in the near future. Yeah. And yeah, so look forward to that. We'll also probably record some podcasts from here, too. Uh, maybe we'll do some exploring and record podcasts and that. It'll be a lot of fun. Mm, we might see some other haunted places. I'll see mm-hmm. if those ghosts know my ghosts. I'll I know. Maybe maybe they can all become friends. Maybe you can bring back some more ghosts to your house. Bring back some friends. Yeah, that'd, yeah. Yeah, that'd be kind of cool. Yeah, get get like the gang it. back together. Fill the house with ghosts. That's yeah, okay. exactly. All right, here, everybody. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of That Chapter Podcast. And um, yeah, you know, listen, just hang 10, stay bodacious and um, appreciate you listening. I've no more to say. Where do we go from Hang 10? I, mean, that's, oh, yeah, that's I know. Ultimate. That's it. Yeah, I know. We, that should be our new call yeah. sign, right? We listen, all right. Hang I, 10. I don't know where I'm going. Hang 10, it. guys. I, I'm very <laughs> heavily dosed up on uh, medication right now because I'm still quite sick. So I probably should have stopped off. All right. Listen, you guys are great. Thank you. Bye-bye. See ya.